Welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land where I live, the Biripai people, and all other First Nations people within Australia. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. The gorgeous little song that you heard in the intro and the outro is called The Littlest Birds. It was performed by the Oluca family band from the Olive Gap Farm. It was originally performed by the Be Good Tanyas and generously sponsored by the Olive Gap Farm, which is a certified organic family farm specialising in small batch native essential oils and seasonal cut flowers. I highly recommend checking out their tea tree oil online. They are located on Bundjalung country in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia and draw on inspiration from various sustainable farming practices to create a high quality product that's equally nourishing to us and the earth. You can check out links to their website and social media in the show everyone welcome to another pollination mama's podcast i've got a guest here all the way from masula i feel like i should do that with an accent but i wouldn't i'd, I'd mess it up <laughs> i've got prairie wolf here from somatic connections and i've been following prairie's work on instagram and social media for a while and honestly from like some of prairie's first posts and then continuing on listening to her wonderful sharing whether that's um like her little videos or what she writes i've just always always really touched by it and I feel like I always learn something and it always just kind of strikes a chord with me in my body and my heart and my mind so yeah I was like I'm gonna reach out to Perry and ask her to come on the podcast um yeah like I said her passion and dedication and knowledge to supporting mothers and families is really clear especially in the fourth trimester but also beyond and Prairie brings a powerful and unique skill set to assist in healing and education. So some of those are somatic experiencing, craniosacral therapy, myofascial release, innate postpartum care, which we've both studied with Rochelle, I think um, Prairie probably a year or two before me, vaginal steaming, similar, and then holistic pelvic care, um, and sexological body work, but there's more there. It's just this amazing, unique <laughs> package. So um, I was saying to Prairie before we jumped on, I was writing some notes. I was like, 
oh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> so much good stuff. So I'll just, I'm going to hand over to Prairie now. Thanks so much for being here. I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself. Um, you live, I find, a really wonderful life over there, it looks like. <laughs> you're a farmer, you're a mother, you do all this beautiful mother care work. Um, yeah, a little bit about yourself and your transition to motherhood, what that was like in healing. But also... It's Independence Day there, which is huge, and we might get into that later. So I just want to acknowledge that as well. It's the day after here in Australia, but Independence Day there. So, yeah, thanks for being here, Perry. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, and, and hearing you list all of that out, I was like, wow, I really, I have been, that is, that's a lot of different little um, threads that get woven together in my work. Um, and how important, how important they all are. And also the intersections that come together that I noticed just like with each, each piece of work, it often seems like are just different avenues or different angles to get into the same sort of intention or goal when I'm working with, with people. Um, yeah, so I live in Missoula, Montana. I am um, a white woman and live uninvited on, in Salish territory here in, in Western Montana. Um, and my partner and I own and run an urban farm here. So a lot of what I do is, is food related and also like really earthy grounding. I thought being in the, in the farm and in the soil is one of the ways that I stay a little like literally grounded and like a way to come back into my body and also the body of the earth. Um, yeah, my, my mothering journey, it's such a great question because that really is the foundation of, of everything that I do before. Um, I come actually from a, a history in education, a history in, in botany. I have a degree in ecology and I worked as a botanist for about 10 years um, and sort of thought that was, that was the route I was on. And it was, it was good. I loved it. You know, I, I got to be outside in the wilderness and with plants um, but it never felt like, it never felt like me. And I don't think I really realized that until I came into this other form of work, what, what being me really felt like. Um, but my mothering journey started um, seven, seven and a half years ago when I became pregnant with my first kid. Um, and that pregnancy was really challenging for me on an emotional level. Uh, I had a lot of fear and I wasn't really ready to be somebody's mother. And I certainly was not ready to go through birth. I had this huge fear surrounding labor and birth. Um, And I really believe that that fear impacted how that birth went. Uh, It was a intended home birth with a midwife who I have a really great relationship with and trusted quite a bit. But um, my baby got stuck in the birth canal and we got transferred to the hospital and ended up with an emergency C-section. And um, we could go into the details of that, that birth, but re- really the, um, yeah. Yeah. Should I go into some? Sure. Details? I think, yeah, if you're feeling, if you're feeling comfortable to, I'm, I'm sure it'd be really valuable. Sure. Yeah. I actually had a similar experience with my first birth. Um, almost eight years ago, a home birth transfer. Yeah. yeah. So 
Yeah, I think it would be really helpful for people to hear that because often we only hear the really wonderful home birth stories and I think that Mm -hmm. is really important, but I also think it's good to tell um, all stories. Yeah. Yeah. So that I, I had a lot of trouble setting boundaries around that birth because I was kind of, I think I was afraid to feel the boundaries. I had some roommates who are really close friends and wanted to be there to support me. And I didn't know how to tell them I didn't want them at my birth. Um, so partially there was like, I wasn't sure how to set boundaries with people at, around my birth. Um, but then also, as I mentioned, there was this immense fear about becoming a mother and going through labor. Um, and essentially my baby got stuck, like, as I mentioned, he got stuck in the birth canal and he started having heart B cells and they were significant enough that we got transferred. Um, and then at the hospital, the, um, attending OB had attempted to do uh, vacuum extractions and that didn't work. He was like wedged enough that he three, three different vacuum extraction attempts didn't, didn't budge him. Um, which of course was an immense amount of pressure on my pelvic floor. She had the, a foot on the table and was leaning with her full weight and trying to just pull that baby out. So not only is he having this immense amount of physical trauma on his cranium and his cranial sacral system and his fascial system, and then my pelvic floor had an immense amount of pressure being pulled on it. Um, And then we got transferred into an emergency C-section and it was such um, an emergency at that point that um, I got put all the way under for many C-sections. Of course, it's just like a local and you get to be sort of awake and watching, but I got put all the way under and my partner wasn't permitted in because he didn't have time to wash up. Um, And so I can feel this coming up in my body right now, this this, like desire to cry or some emotion coming in because this is the point that really is like, has been hard to reconcile um, in part because I don't have any explicit memory to work through. It's all been implicit and through the body. Um, but there was a part that really stands with me and that my baby didn't have either of his parents there to welcome in, him into the, into the world. Um, and so that postpartum time was really challenging for me. It was really challenging in part because I um, – because there was still this fear and like you know just starting become mother for the first time um but i had gone through this emergency c-section and anytime a body goes through surgery um it registers as a traumatic event for the for that body um and so even if it's life-saving even if it is consensual the body registers it as trauma and anytime that we go through even like um, a spinal epidural or a full like anesthetic getting, getting put all the way under, that's a forced freeze event that happens in the body. Um, and that doesn't generally, in my experience or what I have noticed, that doesn't generally solve itself on the other side. There needs to be some process through so the body can recognize that um, it doesn't need to be in that freeze anymore and it did survive that surgical event. Um, and so my postpartum time, I now, I now would probably call it postpartum depression or perinatal mood disorder, but for me, it showed up a lot as, as a lot of anger, um, and mistrust and difficulty, um, being vulnerable with, with other people who were in my life who were trustworthy, but just being able to be like very real emotionally on that level. Um, 
and and I didn't realize, I don't think I realized I had like what we call a perinatal mood disorder until months and months and months later. Um, and of course, it also takes the body a while to metabolize through that anesthesia. So that in itself can like cause quite a bit of funny responses and reactions. Um, and then just real quick, because I do want to fat, I do want to just mention how things all how things changed for me in the next few years is fast forward three years. Um, I did a, a lot of emotional work and physical work in that time, but three years later, I was able to have a really beautiful home feedback with my, my daughter. Um, and just the, for me, that is just like such a powerful thing to be able to come back into that same space and that same house with my same midwife and my same partner and just feel actually very comfortable and confident in my body after the previous experience. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, um, yeah, really powerful. I think I've gained a lot from hearing that and I think a lot of people will just to really break that down and be real about it because so often I feel like, and it'll be interesting to hear what you think it does sort of get swept under the carpet. It's this huge, big emergency event. And even if it's not an emergency, it's this huge event that happens. And then it's like, okay, baby's here. All right. And it's almost like this switch off of that moment and switch on of this. And there's no, um, integration of how each flows into the other. Yes. We, yeah. Did anyone ever come to you and say, Hey, that was really huge. Did, was anyone acknowledging that for you? My midwife, my midwife did. Um, mm-hmm. She did on some level, but, um, but I also remember calling her at like six weeks postpartum when I was having an immense amount of urinary incontinence. And being like, do you have a PT recommend or like, is this normal or will my strength, my pelvic floor strength come back? And she was like, oh, that's weird. Like that was her response was that's weird. And so I was like, oh, am I weird? And so there was at some level, like the emotional part of like, wow, that was a really big experience, but still a lot of disconnect on the physical level. And of course, birth is a big thing. And then a vacuum extraction is like even more pressure on the pelvic floor, but I really appreciate what you said there about oftentimes in birth, there's a lack of integration of our experience and how important that is during the postpartum time. Because as, as Rochelle Garcia Salida, as she says, is that birth is a rite of passage. And of course there are these um, really necessary components of a rite of passage. One is to go through it and two is to be witnessed and celebrated on the other side by your community that you did survive and you did this really big, beautiful thing. And, Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I feel like, I guess, as we've moved into quote unquote modern medicine in the countries we live in, there's better birth outcomes as far as less, less death rate compared to in the past. Um, Then better birth outcomes could be looked in different ways, but I've been researching old texts, old British kind of my language lineage, texts around birth and the postpartum and even up to like a hundred years ago or so there was a huge acknowledgement of how huge birth was um even in these really sort of uh, patriarchal dominant medical texts when they would get to the postpartum period they would talk about the nervous system they didn't call it that they said 
birth has a huge, something like birth has a huge impact on the nerves and therefore the, the confinement or the lying in time needs to be a time of care and quietness and, um, and peace and joyfulness and not too much stimulation, all of these wonderful mm. observations. Mm. And it makes me wonder, is it because when you said this acknowledgement that you've got to the other side and survived. And when that was much more of a life or death situation, even though it still can be, maybe there was more acknowledgement of that and we've become a bit complacent because more mothers survive, more babies survive. So, you know, it's just another everyday event. It's not as huge. So you must have gone through a massive amount of healing and work to get to the point where you could... Uh, feel comfortable and then have that amazing home birth with your daughter a few years later. Yeah, that, um, and I have been so thankful for, for the medium in particular, actually our podcast, because I, when I um, became pregnant with my daughter, I don't think I did much work until that pregnancy happened. um, And then had this realization of like, Oh, I cannot, I will not repeat that experience. I have to have there is that there's got to be something different. I've got to figure something else out. Um, And at that point I discovered Rochelle and then also Kimberly Johnson um, and just like ate up every interview that I could listen to with, with both of them. Um, And when I was about seven months pregnant with my daughter, I um, Kimberly was living in, in um, San Diego at the time. So for, so for folks who, who don't know Kimberly's name, she's a sexological body worker. She's the author of The Fourth Trimester. Um, and so I made a, I emailed her and uh, flew down there for the weekend and saw her four or five times over, you know, like four days, um, seven months pregnant and leaving my eldest child, like without me for the first time in his life and um, received pelvic work from her. And then also along with her nervous system skills, Um, and that was, that was the point that I was like, oh, this, this number one, it works. Like this had huge impact on, on my body and the confidence I have in my body. Um, and two, I feel for the first time seen and heard and valued. Um, and it was that moment that I was like, I think this is the path. This is the route that I need to go on, not just now for myself and my pregnancy, but to be able to serve other women. Because I had searched and searched and searched in my own community, which uh, is is not a, a large community. We're about sixty thousand people, maybe a little more, because we are a college town, um, and had seen like six or eight pelvic floor therapists. And um, you know, of course, I even went to one, and I was like, I need somebody who can be with me in more than a physical way. Like, I need somebody who can be in an emotional capacity as well. And she was very upfront and said, that's not my job. I don't do that. Well, it seems um, what, a, what a disconnect that we have, that we let people into our pelvises, but in a very um, sort of medical or removed sort of way. And then we maybe can go to our therapists or our counselors and try to work through emotional stuff. But a lot of that's top down coming from the head. And there's absolutely no physical touch. At least your United States therapist can't touch your body in any way. Um, and so there's this huge disconnect of like sort of cutting apart the little pieces of humanity and trying to address them 
one at a time without the integration piece. Again, coming back to this idea of integration. Yeah, so, and that's, that's where I started. And, um, you know, I sought some other things out, like some Arvigo uh, abdominal work to just make sure my uterus was in proper alignment. And um, I studied at that point some hypnobirthing and was like got more comfortable being in my body and learning to downregulate because I was um, for much of my life did not know how to downregulate or did not really understand that that was an important part of being a human and finding ways to be happy and healthy. Um, yeah, and have done, have continued to do quite a bit of work around that birth in particular in, since then as well. It's, it's ongoing work for me. Mm, yeah, I think that really comes across when you're sharing that you have done that work yourself and then experienced that and gone, okay, everyone needs to be able to access this and just do your little bit where you are to provide that which I think is super powerful when someone has that lived experience. It's not always necessary, but it does, especially when you're looking at such a holistic therapy, it kind of adds a different element that you've had some sort of lived experience with it. So I'd love for you to um, break down for the listeners what somatic experiencing is, bit of a 101. I know (laughs) it's a huge topic, but um, maybe also because you mentioned uh, part of your healing was with Kimberly and the sexological bodywork and the somatic experiencing. Um, yeah, if they tie in as well, what they are and how they tie in. And um, yeah, just to give people an idea of what that is, what that means. Yeah, yeah. So the foundation of definitely somatic experiencing, but I want to mention here also with the sexological bodywork is the foundation of those both are very much in the body um, and sensation and, and, and like the lived experience in the moment. So with somatic experiencing, it's often referred to as trauma resolution modality, but it's also nervous system regulation. Um, and um, I've heard it called, you know, just like how, how to be a human actually. So, and I think Peter Levine, who is a, the founder of somatic experiencing, um, when he first started developing this, he didn't really intend for it to be like a modality that you would have to go to a specialized practitioner for, but it was more like, this is how you, this is how to be, this is how to be a human because we live in these mammalian bodies. We are animals. And the importance of that is that our bodies respond to stimuli in their animal capacity. Right? So if we have something that our body perceives as a threat, then we might experience a fight response or a flight response or fawning or appeasement, or it might go into freeze. You know, and there's different levels of depending how strong that threat is or how prolonged it is. Um, but what we have sort of forgotten as people is that even though we now live in our cozy houses and we're not threatened many of us are not threatened by, by um, predators or by food insecurity. Although I do want to mention that that really is a big threat for many, many people living in the world today. Um, But there's not the same threat that we evolved to respond to. But of course there's all these other threats that happen. And it's just like stress or, um, you know, like a fight with your partner or all of these other things. Or if we're speaking directly about birth here, um, 
having somebody in your space that doesn't feel safe or somebody that's trying to push you into birthing in a way that your body doesn't want to do, or if you have to go through a surgical birth, again, that, as I mentioned before, is just an inherently um, traumatic thing because that's a huge threat to the physical body. So somatic experiencing is, is som somatic, of course, means of the body. Experiencing is what's happening in the body right now. So when we're processing things through SE, um, we may start with the story, right? Of like what happened. We may want that so we can have a timeline of what, of what occurred for a person, but we're not addressing that story through that, through the words necessarily, or through the like that timeline. We're touching into that story and noticing what's happening in the body. And so we, it's a, it's a little bit of a pause in what's happening so we can expand that moment, right? So we can expand that moment in that story um, or in that timeline and sort of stretch it out a little bit so that we can notice what is packed into that moment. Because oftentimes there's like, oh, a lump in my throat or I can't breathe or my foot goes numb or my leg is totally cramped up or I'm having this flash of a memory and it just won't stop. Great. Let's stay there. Let's notice that. And so we touch in, notice when these, um, these what we call like a stress vortex or a trauma vortex, like touch into that and then let things sort of settle back out. And the healing happens in being able to pendulate back and forth between what feels really activating and when the body gets to settle a little bit. And so we just get to touch in and come back out. And so we might do that by coming, revisiting or touching back into the narrative the story, for example, of my birth story that I shared before, touch back into that narrative and then notice what, what else is happening for you. Um, and that can come in physical sensations, but it also might be images, which can include memory, or it might be, um, you know, like colors or noticing texture or um, something that feels totally unrelated to the story itself. Um, it might be um, the emotional component. And then as a, as a, um, the somatic experiencing practitioner, the person who is holding space for the client, you're also watching for behavior, behavior and movement in the body. Because that's the other thing too, is that when we're telling stories, our body, we might be like using our, our hands in a really specific way, right? Like pushing away from us and creating this um, feeling of a physical boundary with our hands. But as we're talking and it comes and it goes so fast, we don't even notice. So as the person who is holding space and using somatic experiencing it's also my job to say oh hey like you notice your hands there let's just like stop and pause and let's just this what's alive with that what's going on with that and again like using that as a little touch point into anchoring into what's happening in the right here and right now in the body mm, yeah, yeah that makes absolute sense and hearing your story and then thinking about when I had the C-section and yeah, feeling that like I could articulate and I could understand, well, my body just went through this huge trauma. I was awake, but still, you know, you're numb and you can't feel it, but your body's been through this trauma and it felt like my body was always trying to catch up to what was going on. And my head yeah. was trying to make sense of it to help my body, but they couldn't there was a mismatch going on all the time. So it makes so much sense that when you create that space where, yeah, your mind's helping you, your body get 
into the memory or the space or the feeling that it needs to, but then letting the body process that, say if it had been through a freeze or to regulate, to get into balance, to, to catch up or to slow down or whatever is needed to find that balance Mm, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then the sexological body work, um, is that more of the physical touch side that helped for you in your healing and then for for your clients as well? Yeah. Um, And so I studied with the Institute of Somatic Sexology, which is actually a school out of Australia. Um, And um, the sexological body work training is, is largely about, the training itself is largely about helping people integrate their um, their sexuality, their desire and eroticism and arousal. And a lot of it is about education in the body and like education over um, what's actually normal versus what's common or what's normal and what's perceived as normal um, and learning about the, the anatomy, which I feel like is especially important with people with vulvas and internal anatomy, right? We don't, at least here in the United States, the sex education that I got was awful <laughs> and didn't involve, didn't actually talk about any of the, the anatomy or, or talk about pleasure and the importance, the importance of pleasure in sex and sexuality. It was just very, very fear-based. Um, and the sexological body work, you know, it, it um, we learn all kinds of things as far as like we, helping men with erectile dysfunction or ejaculation choice uh, helping women who are unable to achieve orgasm. Um, and a lot of that is really, again, it's a lot about slowing down and coming into the body and noticing sensation and getting out of the head a little bit. But the top skills that I take from, I shouldn't even say the top skills, but one of the biggest parts that I have taken from that sexological bodywork training and into the work that I do now is the, um, the learning that I did around pelvic mapping. And so pelvic mapping can be used. It's a little, it feels a little, a little bit like a, a generic term to me. It's like, oh, well, I don't quite understand what that is. Ellen, he likes to call it genital cartography, which I think is just like such a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful phrase. Um, but pelvic mapping can be used uh, specifically around arousal and figuring out where your erogenous zones are. Um, and what feels good as far as sex and intimacy. That's one way to use it. Um, the, another way to sort of use it is to just find your landmarks, right? So most of us only have somebody touch our pelvises either when we're having sex, when we're in a sexual encounter, or when we're at the doctor getting a pap smear or like getting an STD check or something. And so they're both very, very charged experiences. Um, one might be charged in a really good way, but it has lots of underlying stuff that comes with it too, around expectations or assumptions or performative stuff that comes up. Um, and so pelvic mapping brings that um, pelvic touch and genital touch, external and internal, into a really neutral space. And it allows me as a practitioner to name to that person where on their body that I am. Right. So if we're doing internal work, I can say, hey, I you know if your vaginal opening is a clock face. I'm at about three o'clock and I'm, you know, about two inches in. Oh, my God. Wow. I had no idea. And, you know, like I 
it can feel really disorienting to have somebody in your pelvis or in your vaginal canal um, in that way because it's slower. You get to like the invitation is to come into your body and to notice and all, but also to be able to communicate about it, right? Because part of a really important thing is to notice is somebody going into dissociation, right? We have to be able to track the nervous system on that level too, because that's, if that's the case, that's not safe for either one of us and we need to end the session or come back out or slow down. Um, But to be able to have somebody teach you, okay, this is, this is where your um, like, this is where your vulval vaginal glands are. And this is where your vestibular bulbs are. And this is your clitoris and your clitoral hood. And this is what it feels like when somebody like touches your labia and then internally, this is your urethra and Oh, here I am on your bladder. Can you feel that? Um, And just be able to get some landmarks in it all. Um, But when, so there is such, such importance in that aspect of pelvic mapping of just holding space with neutrality so that you can be there without any performance coming up or expectations or assumptions just to be in your pelvis. And then in addition to that, especially if I'm working with somebody with scar tissue from birth or surgery, there's also a lot of fascial work that goes on so that we can release adhesions um, and get the muscles so that they can fire properly. Because if the uh, the fascia gets moved around a lot during birth or it can get sort of stretched out in places and bunched up in other places. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing in, internally is to help smooth that out and dissolve some of that scar tissue so that the pelvis is, um, is uh, juicier and has more bounce to it and more access to the, to muscles firing. Sorry, my um, <laughs> if you see me clicking away and it takes ages for me to come back, my left click's not working properly, so to unmute myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I guess especially after birth, like you said, there can be all sorts of birth injuries. There could be episiotomy as well and scar tissue, but even just the stretching and the change, that huge stretch and then coming back down. And so many women that I've heard, speak about this have said their sexuality was so different into motherhood and that's one thing they really didn't foresee yeah they thought maybe yeah the first few weeks or few months or whatever but then sometimes it can go on and on and on and you kind of think it's just going to fix itself and sometimes it will but many times it won't so to have those tools for uh, to be able to address that but something else you were saying uh, made me think about, yeah, how important it is to be able to um, access therapies where um, and how rare it is that we are touched around our pelvis and our genitals and our reproductive area in a non-sexual, non-clinical way, just in a therapeutic way or, yeah, to bring awareness. And I often say that for people about vaginal steaming or Mm. yoni steaming, pelvic steaming, that what is really beautiful because often people say there's something really profound happened and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it felt really healing and like it touched me in a deep way. And I said, well, for me, one of the first things that I realized was that I 
and being touched by the steam, it's really gentle, it's really beautiful, it's increasing circulation, it's bringing warmth and pleasure in a way that is non-sexual. You may have, it may bring up some sexual pleasure, but essentially and initially it's non-sexual and it's non-clinical. It's just something that's pleasurable in neither of those ways and it's okay to experience pleasure and awareness in a non-sexual, non-clinical way, but we have not had that thought <laughs> or encouraged in our culture or perhaps not many cultures are ever. Perhaps there have been some other lineages where that has happened. So, yeah, that, that is a really powerful thing for women, especially if you've had some sort of trauma or pain and it's, uh, it's bringing up too much emotion or disassociation to be able to gently... Um, yeah, shift that. Yeah. Yeah. And something that you said there really reminded me that what a portal birth is. Yeah. So, you know, to me, it seems like when you go through birth, you almost have, you have to almost leave this plane and go somewhere to retrieve the soul of your child and bring that back with you. Right. And so we may name that or look at that in different ways, or it might feel a little different to different people, but birth is such a portal and it will blow you open. It will open you so wide. And I think for many of us, especially if we had any trauma or boundary rupture that occurred during the birth, it can be really challenging to come back into the body. And so when we get on this other side, especially now in, in these these cultures that don't necessarily pause and integrate that birth experience like we used to, or like some other cultures actively do. Um, And so having an opportunity to come back into the body in this really neutral way can help. uh, It can just help you feel more like yourself and like you can navigate around your space. Because I think for many of us, we're like, okay, birth is over and that's fine, but I feel kind of disoriented or out of it or I can't, I can't quite tell what's wrong, but I know something's not right. And I think that a lot of that sexuality piece is tied into that too. We go through this huge experience, you know, clearly it has like big implications for our pelvis and our sense of personhood. Um, and in a lot of relationships, the partner may or may not like um, have a full sense of, of what that is. And in fact, I don't think the partner can ever have a full sense of what that is because they don't go through it, especially male partners, right? Like they may be there and supporting you and witnessing you, but they just cannot know. They cannot have an embodied sense of that. Um, and so having ways to help us come back into our body and again, be witnessed and recognized and celebrated and like grounded through touch, through physical touch and somebody help co-regulate our nervous systems, helps bring us into our body, which I, I do believe is a big piece of the sexuality part that comes up for a lot of birthing people. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Mm, Yeah. 
And I guess, like you said, that's why it's so important to have that window after birth of rest, of nourishment, of healing, of acknowledgement, the emotional, spiritual piece of ceremony or ritual that often happened for people. But just that stillness and that slowing down of not, I mean, these days, usually the common scenario um, within the cultures where postpartum care isn't traditionally practiced much anymore is that it's just business as usual, but you've got this huge hormonal shift, physical shift. You're looking after a baby. Almost all of your energy is going into caring for this new being. Your yeah, the hormonal changes, you're needing to be nourished even more and possibly aren't <laughs> being nourished even the least that you ever have been, but needing the most possibly. So it's sort of just, you go into survival. You're like, okay, just moment by moment, days blur into nights, days yeah. into weeks, into months. And then you can often fight because you haven't had the chance just to rest and breastfeed and sleep and be fed. Um, I imagine that if you did and you were receiving certain healing treatments as has traditionally been massage or steaming or both, it would give you time to feel into your body and to feel into that as it shifted over days and weeks and a month or so. But often I, it's, that I know for myself and for other mothers I've spoken to, it could be months or years later when you finally get maybe a little bit more sleep and a little bit more nourishment and you go, oh, whoa, actually there's all this stuff that's been going on. I haven't even thought to talk about it or I've mentioned it here and there, but I haven't had much time or space to look at it. Um, so it can, yeah, it can happen at any time and for us usually years later. So I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on how important it is to reweave that into the fourth trimester. I know you're passionate mm. about that as well, doing innate postpartum care, but then do we need, do, is it often that we would need more healing the longer it's gone on? Mm. Do we have a really like amazing opportunity if we dress that with these healing modalities early on what are your thoughts around that yeah gosh that's such a good question right because there are so many people across the world that are like 17 years ago it happened is there hope for me at this point and i think that can be seen uh, or it can be felt from an emotional point of view but also a physical point of view of like i have had prolapse for 17 years is there any hope for me um and and Yes, I think there's always hope. I want to say that right now. Yes, there's always hope. And yes, it's always important in the, at the time where you realize that, that help is available to seek that help out, even if it is 5, 10, 25 years later, have somebody attend to you. Um, I do think it takes longer and I, and I don't want to promise. I don't want to say, yeah, we, everything can get fixed. Don't worry about it. It's going to be totally fine because I don't know if that's true for every person. Um, and certainly the longer something goes on, the harder it can be to sort of unwind what's going on and sort of take all those little knots apart. Um, so that being said, yeah, it, I do feel like it is such an important thing to happen during the fourth trimester. Um, and, and we know, right, that everything that a new baby needs, a, a new mother needs, a new birthing parent needs as well, right? A new baby needs to be held 
They need to be loved. They need somebody to look into their eyes, sing them something, and celebrate it. They also need to eat easily digested, nutrient dense food. Right? Most of the time, that's going to mean mother's breast milk. Um, and they need somebody to to swaddle them, and to, they need to be warm. Right? They they need all these things. That the the new mother needs those exact same things as well. Um, and and we can't integrate and process our experience through birth if we don't feel safe, right? And I am using safe here, again, in this really sort of primal animal mammalian sense. Um, humans evolved as social animals, as tribal animals, you know, that we, we are survival depended on our family groups and our communities. That is still how our nervous systems operate today. So even before COVID, right, I know that right now isolation is an even bigger, like it's more significant, bigger thing that's happening for people all across the world and for postpartum people. Um, but even before then, typically, especially if you're birthing like in a more medicalized system, you go to the hospital, you birth your baby, you get discharged and you go home. And because I live in the United States and we don't have paternity, uh, parental leave. Um, you know, if you work in a big enough company, mothers birthing people are given three months, uh, but partners or fathers are not given any time at all. And so perhaps you get three months off to be at home with your baby, but then your partner has to go back to work. Uh, we're not really accustomed to asking for or receiving help, especially in the intense way that you need that help in, in the postpartum time. And so people are going home with brand new babies in a totally isolated sense, right? Okay. But we know here, as we just talked about, that our nervous systems are highly dependent on feeling on, like we co-regulate with other people um, and we can't integrate and process through our experience if our nervous systems don't feel safe. Well, we don't feel safe when we're isolated and we've just come from such a big experience. We can't let down if we were, because we're attending to a brand new infant that is 100% dependent on us to be fed, to be um, cleaned, uh, and to be regulated, to be able to breathe, you know, like being with a parental figure in close contact, skin to skin, that's one of the ways that babies like continue to breathe and they know their heart knows how to be like to stay on beat and to regulate that temperature. So when a baby is born, their nervous systems are not 100% fully developed. They don't know how to settle themselves. That's one of the things they're dependent on their caregivers for. Well, if that infant is dependent on the caregiver to co-regulate and help them settle, but that caregiver is in isolation and alone and dependent you know, caring for this baby and has nobody to care for them, then of course that caregiver or that mother's nervous system is going to be on edge, right? It's going to be hypervigilant. It's going to be looking for the threat at all times because she has to care for, for her and for that baby. So even if there is no quote unquote threat, just the fact that you're home alone with the baby in a postpartum time is a threat in itself on that nervous system. Um, and so Part of this, part of this work is one, to help care for mothers and care for birthing people so that they are happier and healthier. That is such an important thing. But we can look down again at like the next generation. If that baby doesn't learn 
how to settle because mom is constantly agitated, then that baby is going to grow up constantly agitated, maybe rageful, maybe prone to depression, maybe prone to anxiety, and not understand why. Because that to me is perinatal trauma. That even if it's just a parent or a caregiver who is misattuned, chronically misattuned because of that caregiver's own experience and inability to like let down and settle, you know, like that, that happens to that, that baby's nervous system too. And so we have like these generations that grow up um, or people that grow up and are like, I am broken. I'm just broken. I uh, like, there's something inherently wrong with me. And that's not true. It's just that there was some misattunement or like some perinatal trauma um, or they're just like your caregiver wasn't attended to so that they couldn't attend to you. Um, and so the, the importance of, of weaving this all together in that fourth trimester is really to care for our next generations. So yes, we can do it later on. And yes, you should do it later on if that's where you're at. But if you're pregnant right now, or if you're planning on having children, like really, I would just encourage every single person to think about your postpartum plan. I just, um, just right before we got on our call, I, w I got back home from my sixth appointment with this mama who, um, you know, I've been with her every week for the last six weeks. And she said, you know, I took so many birth classes while I was pregnant and I took so many like pregnancy classes. And then I took your uh, innate community postpartum care class that I teach here in Missoula. And she said, you can't plan your birth. You can't. I but you can plan your postpartum time. So even if your baby comes early and ends up in the NICU, right? Like even if something big like that happens, you can still plan for your postpartum time and set up who's going to feed you, who's going to be there emotionally for you, who do you reach out to, who's going to help regulate you so that you can regulate your baby. Yeah, so important. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I just keep thinking Oh, all of this just highlight highlights more and more and more how important it is to start this education as early as possible. And then, yeah, especially ramp it up during pregnancy. And I love that you can't plan your birth. You can have your goals and your dreams and you can try and be informed to achieve that the best you can. And then things happen. <laughs> it's good to go in as informed as supported as possible. But yeah, you can have a lot more control over your postpartum as far as caring. And I love that you share about how important it is to the impacts this has on it's often I feel like people think, oh, this is all just about pampering the mother and looking after the mother. And I'm like, well, yeah, she just grew a baby <laughs> in birth. But what is even more far reaching is the impact it has on this child and our communities and our society and we really need to see it in that greater web. And I love that you actually share um, on your social media about that yourself, like what that feels like for you. And um, before we, I'm aware we're coming up to almost an hour, but um, how important it is to do that healing at any time, no matter if anyone's listening thinking, oh, I've effed up and my kids and <laughs> how am I ever going to, you can do it at any time. But you talk about, how you can do that with your children and actually finding the wisdom of the way that children regulate and how that can help 
you and us as mothers. And I really love that. I've tried to, I feel like I was doing a little bit and I've tried to bring that into more awareness and integrate that more into my interactions and play with my kids. I'd love for you to share a bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I, um, yeah, that's great. Um, my, I have, so my older child, my son, he has, uh, he has a lot of big anger. He gets like, he has, he likes to be able to control things. And when things don't go his way, you know, like sometimes there's a lot of anger that comes up and I can look at that and say, Oh yeah, it kind of reminds me of my family line. But a lot of me, I'm like, I really feel like so much of this is, is from that birth in particular and not having control on when he came out and, and all of that. Um, so this time of quarantine has been actually so wonderful for our family in that I got to be home with him more. Um, and I know for a lot of families, it's like, oh my God, but home with my kids more, that sounds like I can't, we're going to like kill each other. But because I am coming with uh, this education and somatic experiencing, I got to be with him and notice as he got activated or agitated and to be able to step in and help him move that energy before it got really big and explosive. Um, And so for kids like him, and I would say probably for most kids, right? Most kids are really physical and they like to be really active. They're really young. They like to move and they like to fight and they like to play. They're very in their bodies. Um, And so we like to play this like pushing and growling game to help move some of that frustration through. Um, And for my kids, it's really key to do it before that frustration gets explosive because at that time it just feels like patronizing to them and they need something else. But we incorporate this into play, like just, just in play, like day to day as part of the way we interact so we can like be physical with each other. And so, we have hands and we like growl and we like use our lips and our teeth and we get really guttural. Um, and one of the, the biggest things is to let them push me. Right. And I get to say, Oh, you're so strong. Holy, you're pushing me across the room. Right. And I can fall over and they get to feel like they have authority or agency. They get to feel like they have agency and they have strength. So then it's not trying to like, then it's not a press and it's squeezing out in all these weird ways. Um, so they get to, and my kids now, once we started doing that a little bit, they'll request it. Like, Mom, can I, can I push you? Or I'll watch them do it together. My six-year-old and my three-year-old and my three-year-old will say, Oh, you're Cassius. You're so strong to her big brother. And it's just like the most adorable thing to watch. Um, but of course not all kids need like amped up, energy or that's not the thing they need all of the time. So it's important to also be able to weave in some of these other skills. And um, in somatic experiencing, we use orienting a lot. Exploratory orienting is literally just orienting around the room is one of the ways to do it. Let your eyes wander, come out of the agitation or the activation that's in your body. Right? I think for a lot of people, this term embodiment gets kind of, um, they assume that it means just in the body all the time and the sensations all the time, but that actually can make a spin out of control. And so it can be really useful for adults, but here talking about kids to be able to orient to something outside of what's happening. And it's very different than distraction. And it can be kind of tricky to start to, to figure out that difference until you get a little practice, but say like distraction, for example, is your kid wants a cookie 
they don't, you tell them no. And so they throw themselves on the floor and they're screaming and they're kicking. And you say something like, oh, uh, we can have ice cream later. Or you just scoop them up and like, let's go outside. Right. There's like, um, or you grab their favorite toy, right. And like shake it in their face. There's like this distraction point. But then of course they don't get to sequence through all of the feelings that are happening in their body. And so that gets tamped down and then it comes out sideways again orienting and oriented to like turning orientation orienting around that I do with my kids when we're in like an explosive time or or they've gotten hurt or really sad and they're in my arms I'll say something like can you do you feel how warm my arm is on your back right that's like really real to them it doesn't feel like I'm trying to draw them away or I'm like oh man did you see that like my eyes are purple, right? And it makes them like look into my eyes and they're like, no, your eyes are green, right? So it's a little bit playful, but it also asks them to, to orient to something just a little bit differently. And that can be also um, on a day-to-day sort of timeline as opposed to like, oh, something's happening. We got to like switch around right now. But on day-to-day, that can mean going out on walks and exploring things together. Oh, wow, look at what flowers are blooming today. Or let's listen to the birds. You can orient through all five of your senses um, and just ask them or encourage them or you guys together find these ways to start exploring the environment so that then it's more comfortable. It's a more comfortable place for them to orient to when they are activated. It doesn't feel brand new and and like a a hoax to them at that point. Mm, I love that. Wow. feel like these are skills we all need to learn for yeah, our skills, own how, how to like, be a human <laughs> yes to be human I actually when you said that I looked at my notes and somewhere in here when I wrote oh yeah somatic experience in the nervous system in brackets I wrote life skills <laughs> I feel like these are just life skills but especially in parenthood um I like just listening to that then I got so much more I'm like oh yeah because my also my eldest is yeah, she's really willful and powerful and experiences lots of anger and some of that I can see where and why, but then sometimes I feel like I am in tuned enough to myself and her and our space to be able to do that, that embodiment. And other times I notice myself disassociate. I'm like, whoa, I just yeah. have no freaking idea how to handle this. I don't want to make it worse. I don't know how to make it better. And so I sort of just let myself experience that and try not to get stuck in it, but it's tough. Though. And I feel like if I had regular um, classes or training or around somatic experiencing and embodiment and parenthood, oh man, <laughs> this would be so much easier and yeah. the earlier the better. And I feel like my youngest, um, although it was a slightly different birth, it wasn't all that different. I feel like she's benefited just from my experience mm tuning in to what you're talking about that environment and how important it is to teach our children how to regulate and to connect we've been doing I mean my kids are very physical we sleep together still and I've been doing sort of awareness type yoga nidra to get my eldest to um, wind down for sleep and that's working really well just you know the top of our head and then our face and our eyes and we really go into all the little details and down through our body and just connecting and then off to sleep and that's really helping but all of these tools you're talking about far out we need to get that out there it really needs to be shared more yeah and I do want 
I know we're, we're very close to time, but I do want to just touch on that point where, where we do get sort of dissociated as parents, right? We, we get beyond our, our window of tolerance sometimes when we're parenting and that's going to happen. Right. And, and that does happen. And in these, how important it, it is to, to be able to build some community around ourselves so that we're not the sole person responsible for helping our children co-regulate or regulate ourselves on top of that. So again, just as we're talking about in postpartum, but we're taking that beyond into the length of parenthood and how important that is to be able to have our people, our community around us too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, you know, the good old saying, it takes a village to raise a child or it takes a village yeah. to look after a mother and to continue yeah. caring for each other no matter where. Um, so, yeah, I know we're aware on time, but I would love to just touch on, I mean, it's Independence Day there. Um, the world feels and looks like it's going, you know, crazy on so many levels, but really these things have been building up and it is should be of no surprise that we're, it is where it's at. And I know here in Australia, we're following pretty closely what's going on in the U S and it does have wider implications given the role that the U S United States plays in the world. But also like if a lot of people know people in the United States and are following. And so first there was COVID huge, Mm isolation on top of already sort of disjointed, disconnected, isolated realities. <laughs> Even if you've got great community and friends and family around, we, you know, we often live in our nuclear families and have to really make an effort to get out and keep those connections going. And now the n- most recent wave of Black Lives Matter, I know it's not the first, on top of that, and huge impacts on our nervous system, on our healing, on family. But on an individual level, you've shared a little bit about this on your social media. And I'd love to, yeah, just hear your thoughts around how these life skills can help us in these times as well. Yeah, it's such a good, it's such a good question and so important. And um, hmm. it's interesting, right? because there's so much collective charge and activation that's happening at a time where we're also trying to socially distance. So it feels really confusing and disorienting. Um, and, and we're being asked to do really uncomfortable work, right? Especially those of us who are living in white bodies here doing right. And, and I, it's just that right it's uncomfortable that's all it is it's not it's not we i mean we can look at our history of genocide and enslavement and just like the horrendous things that have occurred in the name of of white body supremacy um that being said like we're there's a lot of collective charge that's happening on top of this sort of social distancing where we're like encouraged to sort of be fearful of each other and to like just not have to be, be able to share space. And then on top of that being like, look at these really uncomfortable truths that lie within us. Um, and we're building, it's, it really is going to require us to build the capacity to be in that. Cause I think a lot of us like kind of caught, caught the fire and felt really passionate. But the thing about fire is that it burns out 
eventually when it's when it's really hot and fast it burns out really quickly um, and so we are in this time of learning how to build capacity in our nervous system around these topics right this topic specifically around race and how to be in it and how to be uncomfortable and how to have the conversations and how to give power back to instead of re remaining to have power over um, yeah, I'm not sure what, what else I might want to say about that in this moment. Um, yeah. I feel like just that it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward. It's going to feel really yucky. Yeah. And we're probably going to fuck up and not always say the right things or do the right things or ask, but just to keep trying and to keep, moving through that and sit with that and listen and hear and feel. And yeah. I think that sums it up quite well. It's just to, because people so often in so many areas, but in this situation, just want to get to the healed part, just get to the yeah. fixed, just <laughs> get to the, I'm not racist. We all get along. Let's get to the equality. How do we get there? Yeah. Uh, or I'm not racist. So, you know, let's just, I don't, I don't even know either, but looking at that implicit racism, acknowledging it and sitting with that awkwardness needs to happen. And it, like the fire just burns out. It needs to happen for more than a week or two. It needs to kind mm. of be ongoing. Maybe our whole life will oh, be, yeah, have aspects of that. This is a generational thing and to keep an eye on that picture. And hopefully we do see huge shifts and changes over our lifetime. But Yeah, and to be able to notice these points again, if we want to tie this into the nervous system of like, I think we can name, name it generally as white fragility. That's a, um, a phrase that many of us recognize now, but how that shows up, right? So that can be avoidance. Be like, I don't want to deal with this. And so that can come up with, I don't have time for this, or I don't want to have this conversation with my parents. Or it can also come into this really, this big feeling of, I don't even know why I exist. I should stop living. I'm just another white person and I'm part of the system. So I need to like get myself out of here that feeling of like, I'm just part of the problem. That of course is not helping anybody, right? It's centering yourself and centering your whiteness even more, even if that's just within your own self and your own ego. And so be able to like turn your lens back off of yourself and towards other people and be able to hear what they're saying and just notice, yeah, notice when that fear or that anger or that denial, when those things come up and to not then weaponize those things but to be able to notice them and sit with them and take them as your, your own, right? Like we have our own emotional experiences over, over around these things. Um, and that is each person's own like individual responsibility. But of course, when I say that, I mean, you also need your community and your support systems to help you process those, but don't expect people of color or black folks to help you with that processing. So of course, that's part of the issue. That's part of the issue is to like unload all of our own, our own junk and our own stuff onto other people. Yeah. Important. I really like the way that you share that from your perspective and how you see that. I think it's really important. Yeah. So independence day is pretty huge in the United States. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, this obviously won't get released um, for a bit later, but it'll be a reflection piece, I guess, but it'll be bringing up even more of what is amplifying possibly 
or what's already happening. Um, actually, you've just paused. Can you still hear me? Your video is just paused a bit. I can hear. Oh you. yeah. Okay. Yeah, my back on. Yeah. Well, thank you. I feel like there was so many pearls of wisdom in there, and yeah, like I said, I just love the way you share and. Um, I think there'll be a few of us going, all right, let's jump on a plane to Missoula. Oh, that's right. We're in lockdown. <laughs> we're in, we can't travel. <laughs> let's go get a session with Perry. But, um, on that, obviously if you are nearby to Missoula, Perry's there, but there are other practitioners everywhere. I've got a list of resources on my, um, webpage as well. Although I live in a small, um, country town, I think, regionally we've got 20 or 30,000 here and then there's lots of other little kind of towns around but there's not a lot of resources either so I even I would have to travel quite a few hours to access even some of the services and therapies that you offer but yeah to look around like more and more people are getting these skills it's out there and and to just know what to look for so even looking at your website and seeing what these different therapies are. You've got some great information on there. It kind of goes through each one and gives a bit of an outline of what it is and how that can help someone so that people know what to look for, right? Like how to, and I might go, oh, at home I can, I can start steaming now, but I'm going to look for someone who is a sexological body worker or has some experience with somatic therapy or somatic experiencing or um, holistic pelvic care just to know what to look for. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. I'm really looking forward to continuing to follow you. I feel like you should do, I know you're probably super busy being a mum and your practice and farming, but more around the parenting too. I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got a, a good gift of explaining that and feeling into it. So if you could share with people where to find you, um, and I'll put all the links up in the show notes as well. Yeah, wonderful. So on Instagram, I'm at Somatic Connections. Um, I have a Facebook page under that same name as well. Uh, and my website is somaticconnections.org. And I have ways to um, connect with me on the website there. Thank you so much, Perry. Yes, thank you, Shelley. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, we'd love for you to contact us and share any ideas you have for future podcasts and to share that with friends and family or anyone who might get something from the podcast. Leaving a review on iTunes is really helpful as well because it helps us uh, be seen and share what we're passionate about more. Thank you. Thank you.